Section six of the Symphony since Beethoven by Felix Weingartner, translated by Maud Barrows Dutton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. About the time of Beethoven's death, there arose among our western neighbors in France a remarkable artist whose greatness and far-spreading significance in music have been recognized only for a comparatively short time, namely Hector Berlioz. The most remarkable of his early pieces, the Symphony Fantastique, opus 14, is so original that we are not surprised, considering the common tendency arising everywhere to denounce the new rather than prove its worth by careful investigation, that such a work was looked upon as a monstrosity by such eminent men as Cherubini, and was absolutely incomprehensible to the general public, upon whom it rather made the impression of a violent fright. Berlioz, during his lifetime, obtained much the same effect with his later works, although Liszt's untiring efforts at length won some consideration for them in Germany. It was not until long after his death, through repeated and excellent performances, first by Boulot and later by others, that the high worth of his composition became felt and understood in spite of the many external peculiarities. At last the sweet kernel has been found within the rough shell. If we ask ourselves, with Berlioz's intimate friends, how it was possible for such inspired works, which are now so universally admired, to have been looked upon for decades as the productions of a half-diseased mind, we find three possible explanations. At first acquaintance, Berlioz's musical invention appears reserved and unapproachable. None of his melodious phrases bear a character, like, for example, the celebrated clarinet melody in the Freischutz Overture, or like Schubert's themes which irresistibly bewitch the ear and heart of the listener. We imagine at first that we find a coolness, and even a harshness, in those very strains which are seeking to express passion and consuming fire. Berlioz's music reminds one of those rare human physiognomies which appear unsympathetic, until, after close observation, we discern the mental storms and struggles of which those angular features, those deep scarred furrows, and those sad weird eyes give testimony. Anyone who has studied a good picture of Berlioz will understand my meaning. Another reason why he remained for so long a time misunderstood is his abnormal and grotesque boldness in instrumentation. Not only does he bring into play a large number of orchestral means than usual, but his manner of using these means, the great demands that he makes upon the technical skill of the musicians, his extraordinary delicate sense for the combinations of tone color, his full appreciation of clearness in design, all these give to his treatment of the orchestra that peculiar coloring which did not exist before him and has not been imitated since. This, likewise, has induced ignorant or ill-willed critics to say that Berlioz first invented the instrumental effect, and then adapted the music to it. And yet his instrumentation does not show that sensuous element which seems to carry us along in the waves of sound, as in Weber's orchestra, which was also built up with wonderful boldness as regards the various utilization of the instruments, and as it finally appears in the hitherto most perfect orchestra, that of Wagner. We are dazzled by Berlioz's orchestration, but not intoxicated. It is bright sunshine upon light green leaves, around which a clear, pure air is playing. 
the deep fragrance of the spicy shade in the pine wood is lacking the third cause which renders the understanding of berlioz difficult lies in the materials and poetical subjects which he chose for his works as also in the relation in which his music stands to those subjects and the way in which it illustrates them let us first consider the symphony fantastique berlioz has headed it with a program which describes each of the movements separately this is an indication of the poetical tenor that the listener is to bear in mind the while the symphony is being played this proceeding was in no wise extraordinary it would be very gratifying if some musical historian would establish the fact once for all that what is lightly called program music nowadays is by no means an invention of modern composers the endeavor to express definite thought yes even events by music is apparently as old as music itself we find compositions bearing titles and explanations among the old dutch and italian composers just as frequently as with the german masters before bach Taer in his excellent biography of beethoven which nobody would ever in their right mind read mentions a number of long-forgotten compositions dating from the beginning of the century which either bore titles for the whole piece or had special names for the separate movements for example general title the naval battle first movement the beating of the drums second movement warlike music and marches third movement motion of the ship fourth movement cruising over the waves fifth movement firing of the cannon sixth movement cries of the wounded seventh movement victorious shouts of the triumphant fleet great battles and events of political importance have always excited the imagination of contemporary musicians beethoven himself did not disdain to compose a piece in honor of wellington's victory and in wagner's kaiser march we hear the artistic echo of the successful war especially important appears to us the following program quoted by Taylor: the delightful life of a shepherd broken in upon a thunderstorm which however passes over and then the naive joy on that account who does not here recognize the suggestion for a pastoral symphony Taylor adds the very fitting comment which is also very significant in regard to the so-called progressive artists of today that it was not so much beethoven's ambition to find new forms for musical presentations as it was to have his compositions excel in those forms which had already been developed every good opera overture has its program namely the textbook of the opera which is to follow and spohr has not hesitated in his overture to faust to add besides that a detailed description of the subjects he wishes a listener to imagine while he hears it in the course of this book it will be clearly expressed that the program is no wise a reflection of the composition for which it is supplied unless as in some cases the music places itself in a false relation to the program so that it seems to revolt against its own nature and resolves into non-music berlioz's symphony fantastique is said to represent the feverish dream of a young artist who in despair at having been refused by his beloved has poisoned himself with opium the dose too small to kill him produces in his mind first pleasant and then later horrible images the separate movements explained more in detail through the program are named dreams and passions a ball seen in the country march to the scaffold which is sabbath 
Later, Berlioz added a second part, Lelio, a melodrama incomparable in worth to the symphony. In this he lets the artist awaken from his sleep and speak, and turning again to his occupations, find release from the grief of love. Imagine how baffled the public of that day must have been at the bold attempt to express in music so unheard of a subject. And yet how grandly Berlioz has succeeded in doing the apparently impossible without in the least violating the form of the symphony or falling into empty tone painting. All five movements are perfect pieces of music, ingenious and powerful in invention, construction, and instrumentation, and needing no further explanation for their right of existence. When Berlioz became more certain of the purely musical perfection of his work, he said that the program might be omitted, for the work must be comprehensible without it. He asked only that the names of the separate movements might remain. A listener endowed with a little imagination, and knowing that the third movement was called A Scene in the Country, would easily discover, at the close where the cantilena of the English horn is accompanied by a soft roll of the drums, that the composer intends to imitate a tune played on a shepherd's reed, interrupted by distant thunder. This is similar to Beethoven's Scene by the Brook, where the songs of the birds are imitated. In both cases, this imitation of nature is by no means inartistic. A reproach flung at Brahms and even at Beethoven in his time, for it springs from the absolute underlying mood of the whole composition, and could only come from a soul highly capable of appreciating the wonders of nature, and then giving them out again in artistic form. In both cases, the closing measures which imitate nature are musically and logically connected with what goes before, and are therefore perfectly intelligible from the music alone without the program. In the case of Berlioz, the imitation of nature gives the opportunity for an especially beautiful and formal rounding off of the whole. The opening of the movement before the entrance of the real theme is already formed by a duet of two shepherds' reeds, oboe and English horn, and the end seems to be only a varied repetition of the beginning. For the last movement, the title, which is Sabbath, would have been quite sufficient, for the movement consists of an introduction which prepares one for the weird character of the piece, of a chorale executed by deep wind instruments, a sort of parody upon Desire, and a splendid fugato culminating in the combination of the chorale with the theme of the fugue. It is only a question whether the public, knowing only the titles of the five movements, would be able to discover internal relation between the first three and the last two. The program, which explains that the whole work is only intended to be the picturing of an ecstatic dream, may be freely used at performances, because the thoroughly musical character of the symphony guards the listener against inartistic interpretations, and only excites his fancy, which in reality is the true object of the title. Footnote. Liszt, in his pianoforte arrangement of the Symphony Fantastique, has changed the program, stating that the first movement represents actual events, and only the last two are dreams. I do not think this alteration is a good one, as it unnecessarily divides the work into two parts. The keen appreciator of this piece will explain the character of the last two movements as the climatic development of the underlying mood of the entire composition, rather than something new brought in from the outside. End footnote.
If we examine more closely the musical contents of this work, we will find that one theme runs through all five movements, a decided deviation from earlier symphonies. In his dreams, represented musically in this symphony, the figure of his beloved one incessantly pursues the young artist in varied forms and surroundings. It assumes the character of a melody, called by Burley as an idea fixa, and this melody, while retaining its structure as concerns the mutual relation of intervals, is changed in rhythm and expression to suit the situation about to be represented. The idea fixa appears in noble simplicity in the first movement. In the second movement, entitled A Ball, it is represented in waltz time, yet without losing its stateliness. Adapted to the character of the scene in the country, it is changed into a pastoral melody, given out by the woodwind instruments. In the fourth movement, it appears only as a fleeting thought to a man as he is led to the scaffold. And finally, in the witch's Sabbath, it becomes a distorted and grotesque dance time. The beloved one has turned into a she-devil, who joins in the spectral uproar of witches and other mystic beings. Berlioz did not, as some critics will always claim, build this symphony upon one theme from the lack of musical invention. But the different forms of this theme are woven into all the movements, which otherwise are quite independent. The changing and transforming of a theme is nothing new. We know that the old masters, above all Beethoven and Schubert, created many of their works in the form of variations. We know also that in our day, Brahms attained a great perfection in the mastery of this form. But the variation of a theme, arising from a perceptible reason, I might say the dramatic psychological variation, was first used by Berlioz in this symphony, and is absolutely his own creation. It is the same kind of variation which lists, expands, and perfects in his symphonic poems, and which Wagner at last uses as an intense means of expression in his dramas. These Wagnerian themes, varied psychologically in the service of the drama, have received the name of leading motives, light motiving. This is the place to say that the name is just as unsuitable and out of taste as are most of the names of the so-called leading motives themselves. A motive that should guide us, as it were, through musical labyrinths, as such Wagner's scores were at first considered, and which is to keep us from losing the thread, should indeed never change, but always be clearly recognizable to us. But Wagner's themes change continually and enter into the most varied relations with each other, just as the emotions of the will do within our own mental life. In their protean nature, they would be but little adapted to serve as guides for the ignorant through dark pathways. But by their variations and by their combinations, which are only possible in polyphonic music, they become the true images of the dramatis personae, and it is through this kind of thematic work that Wagner's drama obtains its impressive force and clearness. The leading motives with their strange names, and their consequent guidebooks, Leitfaden, have brought about more confusion than instruction concerning Wagner's art. We often find people who think they have studied Wagner's work sufficiently when they have discovered the largest possible number of leading motives. They take the same delight in his dramas that children do, trying to find the hidden face in a puzzle picture. Others think all that is needed to comprehend a musical composition 
is to learn by heart the themes enumerated in the guidebooks. They spend their time in useless memory work and gain no deeper insight into the music. Nevertheless, these guidebooks may have furnished the means of study for intelligent readers who know how to go farther. Nowadays, however, this leading motive system is applied to all kinds of music, even to classic symphonies, and the latest productions of this kind are the program books, which are distributed in some cities at every orchestral concert. The intellectual harm they do the listener is even greater than the material gain they bring to the publisher. Nothing could be said against those written by a musician and containing music examples, particularly in a case of a new work, provided we could induce the public to read them before the performance. At home there is hardly an opportunity. The time before the beginning of the concert and the pauses are filled, as a rule, with conversation. Therefore, the reading begins after the performance of the music has already commenced. Observe now a group of listeners supplied with program books. For economy's sake, naturally, two or three always look over the same book. Is it not ludicrous to see how the heads come together and how the fingers point to the music example printed in the book when that particular passage is being played? Immediately afterwards, the continuation of the text is read as quickly as possible so that the entry of the next music example may not be missed. What value can there be in such distracted listening and insufficient reading? The program books make it so easy, is the reply. This making it easy will eventually bring it about that the conductor will only need to bring out as pointedly as possible the passages quoted in the program books, in order to be sure of being praised for clearness in elaborating the performance of the orchestra. And the listener will need only know these passages in order to be able to talk about and criticize the work, to have always a quotation from it on hand, and in fact to assume the character of a connoisseur. Moreover, to spare expense, the program books are gotten up hurriedly and superficially, so that they are of no use either to dilettantes or musicians. I lose no opportunity to point out the harm that the reading of these analyses does, and to urge such as believe that they cannot dispense with these program books to read them at home in connection with the study of a good pianoforte score, but not in the concert, during the music. There is still another bad habit resulting from the leading motives, namely reminiscence hunting, which has become in our days so ostentatiously obtrusive. Now that it is the custom, since program and guidebooks are so prevalent, not to look at a piece as a whole but only in fragments, few listeners endeavor, in hearing of a new work, to gain an impression of the entire piece and then turn to the details, which can only be intelligible in their relation to the whole. The themes or leading motives from which the piece is said to be built are first sought out. Then, when these are found, or after they have been neatly extracted by some guidebook, like eyes from the head of a carp, they are compared with themes already known, that is, with those printed as examples in other program books. First of all, with those of Wagner, because he is nearest us in point of time, and is the most powerful figure of the recent past, and the younger composers must therefore become his disciples before they dare be followers of other masters. Woe to them if there occurs some slight similarity of notes, say C-G, for instance, in some phrase, where there is also a C-G in a Wagner theme. 
woe if an upward chromatic progression can be discovered the new theme is then immediately from tristand and isolde's longing love motive two consecutive fourths become at once beckmesser's thrilling thrashing motive and a dotted rhythm in six eight time is alberich's furious forgiving motive finally the whole work is woven from sacred wagner it is astonishing with what speed a new work can be disposed of in this way before one has had any opportunity to become acquainted with it if nothing or little could be found in wagner's works to render the victim suspected then a search is made among the compositions of the little father-in-law schwiegerwatterchen liszt or of berlioz or of old masters yes even among those of meyerbeer or in operettas or street ditties it would be a fine task for some experienced musician to gather together and criticize all the nonsense which has been found in these researches footnote some ingenious person for instance claims that the theme to the witch in the closing scene of gotterdammerung brunhilde sings the words für meine brust auch wie brennt has been taken from the vulgar ditty to hastiadi schonsten augen there is indeed a similarity of notes but how long the ear of the happy discoverer must have been on the other hand a short tremolo of the strings on a e or d a has sufficed to connect brahms tragic overture with beethoven's ninth symphony and footnote the reminiscence hunters forget in their half childish half malicious joy at having found some such similarity of notes to examine the character of the theme itself the position it occupies the manner of its elaboration finally the aspect the quality the physiognomy of the entire work they hear with their eyes and not with their ears they also forget that the same sequence of tones is not a reminiscence they forget that many items must enter in such as time kind of tones expression arrangement of the whole and forget above all the recognizable and similar inner cause that calls for just this and no other sequence of tones and proves the composer's capability for finding the right expression and the necessity for holding to it footnote incidentally let it be said that one finds with a special glee reminiscences whenever one is determined to find them but on the other hand is silent concerning the obvious harmonies which one prefers not to hear and footnote moreover they forget on the other hand that the whole mood of a given passage may recall another without there being discernible the slightest similarity in the succession of notes these mood reminiscences are noticeably overlooked and yet they are the only ones worthy of consideration because they go much farther towards providing a composer's want of originality than do these accidental note similarities similarities appear everywhere and quite frequently in the masterpieces from bach to wagner they have never before had any influence in estimating a work and until today it never occurred to anyone to want to use them thus who would have dreamed for instance in beethoven's day of pointing out his eroica symphony as not original because in the first theme the notes are similar to those in the beginning of mozart's bastian and bastiana the entire work was misunderstood critics complained of lack of form of an inflated style for dazzling effects etc but beethoven would have had to have lived in our day to have been called a plagiarist because of the similarity above mentioned now for the first time in these days of leading motives and program books 
is a slight similarity of sounds sufficient to condemn an entire work as plagiaristic and to give a bad start to the journalistic slaughtering which in consequence of its widespread distribution takes the place especially in large cities of intelligent and conscientious criticism if a composition bears the characteristics of its author and is perfect as a whole and as to its separate parts then it is of no consequence if there are also some accidental notes similar to places in some other composer's works i state this as clearly and decidedly as possible on the one hand for the protection of such composers as may be in danger of losing confidence in their own gifts on account of the judgment passed upon them by the reminiscence hunters and on the other hand as a warning to those who from fear of this judgment nervously and violently avoid every innocent similarity of sound and thus give to their work the stamp of forced originality which is the very worst thing they can do for the result of this is stilted far-fetched and distorted conglomerations of sound with their superficial profoundness and superfine banalities which we meet today in the song as well as in the symphony and opera and which expect to attain success if only they are cleverly and artfully done hence the morbid and nervous music lovers of our time who need the strongest stimulants to awaken them for a few moments from their dreamy languor and who close their glassy eyes immediately afterwards in slothful slumber indeed i believe i am quite right when i point out this fear of not being thought original as the evil spirit which robs many of our young composers of their sense and feeling of what is healthy strong and true therefore i do not in the least fear the reproach of encouraging plagiarism when i freely and openly exclaim rather an honest reminiscence than a contrariety to nature however it is a comforting thought that this reminiscence hunting is only a fashionable ailment which will vanish with time although in the meanwhile it attacks many a wise head and although many a creative artist of the present day may die of this disease for not every one has the strength to resist its doubtless unpleasant effects not every one has the presence of mind to offer his brow courageously to this demon fear of lack of originality not every one has the sound self-confidence to meet this foolish degeneration of sound judgment with at least a shrug of the shoulder if it does not seem necessary to him to pause and say a few strong words on the subject but to return to our theme the prize for being the real discoverer of these dramatic psychological variations that have had a magnificent positive effect but as we have seen also some negative ones belongs without question to hector berlioz thus he can in all justification be called the predecessor of wagner besides his pioneer work the symphony fantastique berlioz wrote another symphony in four movements entitled harold in italy this symphony hardly attains the level of his first one of his other works apart from his important overtures le corsier king lear benvenuto cellini and carnival romaine we have still to consider the dramatic symphony romeo and juliet and the legend la damnation di faust which almost belongs to the domain of opera in both these works berlioz shows himself as the ingenious musician rather than the artist apparently his inner being drew him towards the opera but the bold symphony writer and master of orchestration was not capable of making that great stride which was reserved for richard wagner namely 
to let the music of his drama grow out of the spirit of the text without troubling himself about the opera form. Berlioz selected and composed for himself opera texts, according to the old models, and then adorned them with charming and spirited pieces of music, which are among the very best operatic music that we possess, after the classical masterpieces. He also took hold of great existing operas, such as Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and Goethe's Faust, and arranged them so as to serve his own purpose. This purpose was to open up new ways of expression for his energetic musical soul, to create music and more music, the most beautiful, most ingenious music of which he was capable. He did not consider whether the form he chose was artistically justified. As a matter of fact, I cannot justify it from a purely aesthetic standpoint any more than I can Schumann's Paradise on Piri. It is but a styless mixture of different forms, not quite oratorio, not quite opera, not quite symphony. Fragments of all three, and nothing perfect. In Romeo and Juliet, a fugato pictures the strife between the two hostile houses, a long recitative for the orchestra, the meeting, interference, and threats of the prince. Little choruses and solos tell of the unhappy lot of the lovers, of the power of love, of Queen Mob. Great orchestral pieces depict the ball at Capulet's house, the love scene, and again Queen Mob. Thus this little episode, so unimportant in the drama, is brought in twice, while the tragic conflict, on the contrary, is entirely omitted. A chorus piece illustrates the lament of the women over Juliet's supposed death. An orchestral piece, without a vocal part, paints the awakening and tragic end of the lovers. Finally, a thoroughly operatic finale describes the gathering of the crowd, Father Lawrence's sermon, and the reconciliation of the rival houses. Berlioz chooses the situations, which seem to him best suited for musical composition, without any regard for the organic connection of the whole. In La Damnation de Faust, he lays the opening scene in Hungary. Why? During a trip through Austria, he had heard the Rakosi march. He had scored it brilliantly and was looking for an opportunity to utilize it in a larger work. This opportunity he found, curiously enough, in Faust, and in order to find some justification for the march, changed the scene to Hungary. He confesses this very willingly in the preface to his work. In order to be able to compose a ride to hell, a real pandemonium, he had Faust perish in that place, quite at variance with Goethe's drama, to which he otherwise, for the most part, adheres and in which Faust is saved. But this ride to hell is such an ingenious piece of music that we can scarcely regret the violence Berlioz has done to Goethe's poem. The excrescence, if I may so call it, in Romeo and Juliet, the episode of Queen Mob, has given us a wonderfully fantastic orchestral scherzo, absolutely unique of its kind. In both these works, the other symphonic pieces, with the exception of one about which I will speak later on, are also marvels of ingenious and remarkable music. I may mention the feast at Capulet's house, the magnificent and passionate love scene, and the dance of the will-of-the-wisps and of sylphs in La Damnation de Faust. On the whole, I consider this work, apart from the symphony fantastique, as his most significant creation. The dramatic psychological variation of a theme is used in none of his other works, not even in the Herald Symphony, with such a brilliant effect as in this symphony. 
Berlioz had a great idea, but he himself did not bring it to its greatest perfection. That was left for his successors to do. His collected works, even if the last-mentioned ones seem lacking in perfection of style, have exerted a weighty influence upon musical art. He stands as the real originator and founder of the modern school, which is the leading one today, and whose advocates are striving often with impetuous haste to attain new aims and the highest possible success. Berlioz will always represent a milestone in the development of music, however that school may grow. He did not approach by any means that ethical depth, that ideal perfection and purity, which surround Beethoven's name with such unspeakable glory. But no composer since Beethoven, except Wagner, has enriched music with so many new means of expression, has pointed to so many new paths, as did this great Frenchman, whose sheer inexhaustible fantasy only appears the more powerful and rich the more we try, through loving study, to appreciate his compositions. End of section 6